called uh, fasting. It called it anguish of soul. There's a real uh, element of communing one with another. You and I both know what it's like to uh, go out to have a little coffee or a bite to eat with someone, and and there's silence. And it's not that the silence is bad, but there's no nothing that's that's kind of shared in a common way. There's no identification, and it becomes uh, somewhat awkward, right? Well, I don't think God is about awkward when He t- wants to communicate with His children. He enjoys that aspect of that sort of give and take, as it were. And so prayer has been quite important to us. Now, what I want to do is review what we talked about last night. I want to introduce and cap it off with a concept from the book of Job. And then we're going to go to the book of John. And in the book of John, we'll, uh, we'll be uh, talking briefly about, um, excuse me, we'll talk briefly about some of the uh, uh, um, uh, things that the Lord Jesus said about worship. So last night we talked, uh, we defined the term and we mentioned how it uh, has to deal with that which is before God in terms of um, uh, uh, lowering oneself. And it's not so much there's a, a necessary always only posture of prayer. That's what I'm talking about. I, I, what I want to, what I want to emphasize is the necessity to have one's heart appropriately positioned before God. It's that really the heart attitude, as we'll learn from the Lord Jesus' teaching in John chapter 4. Um, we, we looked at its introduction comments in Genesis 18, some in Genesis 19, and then Genesis 22, where we took some concepts and we, we saw that, the, that worship was, first of all, uh, done in a voluntary fashion. It was done because you want to, not because you have to. And I want to just take a minute and challenge us. It is so easy to do things in the Christian life because we have to. Now, don't get me wrong. Obedience is important. But you know what he says in the New Testament? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right? You understand what he's saying? If you have that affection and love, that agapeo kind of attachment to me, the commandments that I give you won't feel like commandments at all. They'll be the things you want to do. It's not hard when you want to do it, isn't it? You ever hear the phrase, I love my job? In other words, it's not a big deal for me to go to work because it's something I enjoy. It's the same concept. You love the Savior. You enjoy this about Him. You're happy to do so. It's not a drudgery. It's not a, it's not a, oh, here we go again. We're always having meetings. No, no, no. It's, I love the Lord. Therefore, I'll do it. That's what the new dynamic is in the New Testament. It's totally a different motivation. The Old Testament was motivated strictly by fear and a desire for blessing. The New Testament, it says this, perfect love casts out all fear. New commandment I give unto you. It's all different now. It's a different heart mode motivated element. Anyway, going back to where we were, we looked about it as it was voluntarily, it was done lovingly and giving that deep devotion of the burnt offering sacrificially, uh, that there is an element in which sacrifice may be involved, and God notices such. We talked about how it's personally. Abraham took every detail upon himself. We talked about how he was persistent. He didn't give up after the third day. He kept going to the end goal. We talked about how it was done in faith, that the lad and I will go, will worship and come back. We can only approach God through faith. You understand that, right? Think of it this way. Faith is like the currency. It's like it's like money, if I may. Just It's currency. And it's the same currency whether you live in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's the same currency that was at the time of Adam, at the time of Noah, 
at the time of Abraham, at the time of Moses and Aaron. It's all by faith. It's the common currency, we say, of every dispensation. It, it fits no matter what time in history you live. Faith is always the common denominator for people to be born again. That's very important. He was exercising such a faith. Uh, we talked about how he was persevering uh, uh, when the question was asked. I would have given up. We talked about how he was so committed in binding his son and then the test that's involved. Sometimes it does take the test, that whole idea of where God said this and, and, and he, God gave me this promise and here's this command and, and it doesn't make sense, but we, we, still, we still allow that testing process to go uh, uh, and allow ourselves to undergo the chastening hand of the Lord. And we talked a little bit about the concept and the substitutionary element, how at the very last minute, the life was exchanged for life, like Barabbas' life was exchanged for the Lord, or the Lord Jesus exchanged himself for Barabbas' life. There was, of course, respectfulness in how he called the place Jehovah Jireh. Uh, Yahweh will always provide. Can you imagine the lesson Isaac learned that day? Because Isaac was still breathing. Hmm? That really made a dent on him. And, of course, God gave him his approval. That's really what this is about. We want our Lord to have the, we want his approval. We wanted that old, we want, like the Old Testament phrase goes, a sweet-smelling aroma. Have you ever gone home after a meeting, maybe on a Sunday, and you've got the roast in there cooking, and you open that door, and all the family go, <sighs> Now, some of you do that with the drug coffee. I don't do that, but uh, I do enjoy its aroma. But nonetheless, when that hits you, you oh, boy, that's same idea. It's soothing, it's inviting, it's captivating, it's arresting, it's pleasant. That's just what God is saying. Worship of this caliber has this type of effect upon me. Well, I'd like to have, I'd like to have that effect upon the Lord, wouldn't you? Of course I would. I love it when, when we can do things and it's such an aroma of beauty to the other person. They're so blessed. Don't you like that? The Cliffords are doing that to us now. Now, what, what I want to go, go to now is to talk about this thing here called Worship in the Life of the New Testament Believer. So let me plug in again. Get that going. There we go. Worship in the Life of the New Testament Believer. There it is. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to first of all define the term in the New Testament so that we're, we're all on the same page. And it has a little extra nuances than what we had in the Old Testament. So you're going to see some busy slides here. And usually when you see busy slides, this is our normal response. No, 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 no. No sleeping today in my class, okay? Now, it's used, the word is used somewhere around 17, or excuse me, 60 times in the New Testament. The greatest concentration is actually in the book of John. It's, it's listed somewhere around 15, 16, 17 times in a matter of six verses. The book in the New Testament that has the most usages of this most common word here, proskinio, that, that's in the book of Revelation, and it's used somewhere around 25 to 30 times. Now, Strong's. Strong's is, as you know, the concordance of all concordances. It's been around for 150 years plus or so. And in that, he put his, a dictionary, a lexicon. means the same thing. And he writes a very simple definition. For years, that's all we had, really, for Bible study tools. 
And he writes this very interesting idea. It comes from the root word to kiss, to kiss. And you're going to see as we trace these definitions into the New Testament why kiss is part of it. Now, what does it mean? Well, he's referring to, this is Dr. Strong. He says, listen, it's like a dog licking his master's hand. Now, we have dogs in our house. The Cliffords have a dog. I love them, actually. I do. But we got one dog, but boy, all she can do is lick. I think she was born with a loose tongue, you know. And she just comes up and licks you. It doesn't matter where. Just licks you, licks you, licks you. So you can clean yourself. <coughs> the dog is, in, is, is, is in, they're interesting that way. Um, there's an old story that goes with this whole idea that the, the, the man that rescued the animal that was abandoned on the street in the cold weather, it's a famous story actually, and as that man brought that animal home, and rescued and nourished its, its malnourished body back to health and vitality. One day, the, that individual, oh, do, now dog owner, the master, was sitting in his fireplace just reading, and the dog was lying quietly on the floor, and without notice or without any type of warning, the animal got up and just licked the master's hand there. In other words, as if to say, I'm just grateful to be in your presence because you saved my life, you see. There's that kind of affection that occurs, and we're going to see that affection throughout our discussions today. Now, BDAG. BDAG is a, another lexicon. There's several authors in this, in this, this uh, acronym. Ginrich is one of them. But what it is, it's a great lexicon, a great dictionary for your Bible study. It uh, gives lots of cultural information. So I've extracted some of that. And this is interesting, I thought. And the tragedy writers, okay, so the writers of Greek tragedy, they would use this term right there, describing one who would come and bow themselves down and they would kiss the hem of the garment of those who were around them. The Persians specifically did this in the presence of their king, and the Greeks identified with this. This is what they thought of when we talked about worship. And, of course, it was an attitude, a gesture of an attitude that showed complete dependence and submission to authority. So not only do we have this concept of lowering oneself to elevate the other, not only do we have that, not only do we have this idea of a heartfelt uh, disposition, but really it's also bowing to the authority that's involved. It's not that we're co-equals and I go down. It's that you are supreme. This is the concept here in terms of reverence. That's what he's talking about. Now, don't you love that? I found this little... I could do that all day long, I guess. Okay. Zodahadi. Spiro Zodahadi. Who names their kids Spiro? I don't know. Must be a foreign name. Actually, it is. Now, Zodahadis, he writes another lexicon. It's very helpful. It's very complete. And he adds to this. And I like what he adds here. All right. He adds this. He says, listen, what it was, was there's this uh, old Persian way of greeting each other. And what would happen is that if you were of equal rank, uh, you would kiss each other on the cheek. Actually, we do that today, don't, don't we? Certain cultures, we do that. And the, I'm half Japanese. We don't do that there. We bow. We bow. We don't touch each other. That's a no-no. All right. Other cultures, it's done quite freely, and, and especially when I travel in the Middle East, it's done there. Now, now, what if you were of different rank? Well, if you were of an inferior rank, you would fall on your knees and you, and, 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 uh, touch your forehead to the ground. So you would be on your knees, forehead on the ground, and you would be blowing kisses at the one of higher rank, right? 
throwing kisses at, at the one superior at the same time. The Greek writers use this to express this word of worship. So it had that image to it. When If you were writing this, the Lord Jesus was speaking, he would use this term. This was the connotation, the, the, the image, the, the word picture that would go along with the term. Again, a real statement of posture, position, heartfelt bowing to the authority, the superior authority of one another. So thus, we can summarize and say it's not only showing respect, it's showing submission, but you're going to show tokens of that respect. You're going to demonstrate how, that, how your heart is, is actually truly uh, what it was really resembling at the time. Now, oops, did I do that right? Yes. So Vines, he's our famous guy, Dr. W.E. Vine. He's a, my final lexicon that, that I want to present today. He simply says uh, there is a, uh, there's another word used in two passages for worship. And Romans 12.2 and Philippians 3.3 use, notice it's latrio, latrio. And what does that mean? Well, it's the idea of worship like we just talked about, but there's an associated idea with activity. Here it says this, remember this, and, present, uh, and, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it says, of course, that idea of giving your body over to the Lord, which is your reasonable service of worship. In other words, there's an idea of service of your body to God. And so this, there's a, a, a different Greek word used, second most common word translated worship, and it's the idea of service. Same idea in Philippians 3.3, 3, where he's talking about our worship in the Spirit, and it's embedded in this whole paragraph about Christian service, right? And so we have the idea here, secondary idea, in which there's a lot of activity involved. Now, so the primary concept in the New Testament is what I just described, which is proskino, this idea of, of, um, of uh uh, showing the superiority of the other, bowing and placing yourself under their authority, at the same time showing absolute, devoted, and undivided respect. And then a lot of times, and then the concept is extended in this, in this here idea in, in, by Dr. Vine in Romans 12.2 and Philippians 3.3, 3, of there's, a, there's perhaps an active, active component in it. Now, having said all that, that's your background information. Turn to John chapter... Oh, yeah, John chapter 4. While you're turning to John 4, I want to tell you a little bit about Job. Right? Job in, in chapter 1, you don't need to turn to this, I'll just explain it to you. In Job chapter 1, if you remember, there's this very unusual conversation between God and Satan. Now, you would think that that wouldn't be a possibility, but what we're understanding based on this description is that God still allows uh, the angelic person, Lucifer, to actually have uh, moments where conversation can be uh, occur between God and Lucifer himself. It's an interesting dynamic. I, I wouldn't have suspected that. But apparently God, in his sovereign uh, um, uh, rule, allows that to occur. And what Job does is remember, or excuse me, what Satan does is he tries to instigate God to sort of uh, do nastiness to Job. Now, what you have to understand is that God is never tempted to do evil, 
and that's in James, and that God doesn't use our lives like we're a bunch of little puppets that he sort of twists and turns no matter what way he wants, and we just have to pay the price for his whim and, and extravagance. That's not it at all. That would be a lie of Satan. What you find is that God will take the evil of Satan and he'll actually always and, and never fail to turn it into good. That's what the book of Job is about. In the book of Job, you never get a reason of all the things that happened to him. Basically, the last three chapters say the following things. I'm going to ask you some questions, and you need to put your man pants on and and answer me. And, of course, Job had no answer because God was simply saying, I'm big enough for everything that's happened, and you can trust me. That was the answer, actually. Now, what happened? Well, in Job's situation, uh, uh, God said, have you considered my servant Job? And he's this and he's that and the other. And, and Satan says, well, listen, of course he'd worship you. You're being so nice. You take away everything he's got, he's going to curse you to his face. Now, do you think God's like, oh, yeah? No, God's very much, you know, how it's a trash talk in heaven. I don't think so. I think God is very much in control and he's not trying to take Job's life and sort of play with it like a cat does a mouth just before the kill. That's not it at all. What God is going to do is going to actually take Job through that process where Job at the end actually repents of some sinful attitudes. He says, I repent. That's what I have to say. But what does he do? He does this. He goes to Job's life and he systematically dismantles it first by using the Sabaeans, which was a tribal unit, to come and attack and take some livestock and kill the, uh, the, the slaves. And then what does he do after that? Uh, fire from heaven. Now, what does that look like? That looks like God's doing something, right? Last thing you, if you had a lightning bolt hit your house, we call that in the insurance industry an act of God, right? It's not. It's not, yeah, that's what you assume that is. And so, fire of God. See, that was in the text. Fell from heaven. What's Job supposed to think? God's just kind of like beating me silly. And it says that they burned up the sheep and the servants. And I alone, what, how, how come there's always one guy that gets away to tell me the bad news? I, I'm not sure I'd want you to get away to tell me the bad news. So the third thing that happens is the Chaldeans come and they kill, they take the camels and they kill the servants and I alone are left. And the fourth, the four things, boom, 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 and one right after another. And it says, your sons and daughters, they're eating and drinking and this wind came across. What does that look like? That sounds like a tornadic activity. And who's responsible for the weather? Oh, God. So he's trying to make God be the bad guy. You see what he's doing? Now, we get, and by the way, that happens in your lives too, right? That happens in my life. And Satan wants me to think that God's really, he's really busy. He's got Alzheimer's and his walker and he can't get around. He can't remember your name. That's a character. You know what we call that? That's called idolatry when you think like that. And so what happens is, is that uh, uh, the servant came and this is what Job did. Job arose, tore his clothes, which is a, a statement and evidence of humility and brokenness, shaved his head, and he said this, fell to the ground and worshipped. And here's the point. Worship to God is not based on your benefits. It's not because you got a great 401k package in heaven. It's not because your, your social security is guaranteed in the throne room. It's because you love God for who He is and what, and, and for who He is and how He is, no matter the evidence in front of you. That's ultimate devotion, isn't it? 
And that's what this is about. That's what sets the table for everything about worship in the Bible. Now, let's go to John chapter 4. What did I just say? <laughs> yeah, we're, okay. And then what else did I say? <laughs> I tell you, these are hard questions, Tim. <laughs> I think I said worship to God is not based on our benefits, but is... Uh, is uh, John, what did I just say? Can we back up the tape? Oh, man, I, I can't. Oh, yeah, who he is and what he is, not based on what he does. Thank you so much. You know, it's, I'm so sorry, brother, that speakers do that. They say things and they can't remember what they said. That's why they keep speaking, to remind themselves. So. No, no, don't you worry about that. That happens all the time. I have nine kids. All right. All right, thank you. Let's go to John chapter 4, and we're, that's where we're going to be. i got to turn there myself, so give me a second. John 4, 1. All right, I've divided this up into a couple of things so that we can, we can kind of have some guideposts to go by. I'm going to, I'm going to explain part of the context, and then we'll focus on verses 19 through 24. And this will take us up to our time today, and then we'll spread it out into the next hour, and the next hour, and then the fourth hour after that. Okay, there's a prelude, all right? Then there is, uh, and that's roughly verses 1 to 6, and then there's an engagement, and it not an engagement like a ring, but the Lord engages her, and that comes on the first question. Then there's a second question, and there's sort of an explanation involved, and that's roughly 11 through 15 or, or 14. And then we have a third question uh, that comes to the table, and, and the Lord is really exposing things there. And then, of course, we come to our paragraph, where there is uh, uh, another sort of question, I perceive you're a prophet, and that's where we have the expansion of what God is saying, what Jesus is saying. So it's just sort of a progression of thought. But let's just go through some of the things that are there in the prelude. In the prelude first, in verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour or noon hour. There's a lot of images and history here, so I'll try to be brief. But notice the first thing that happened. Jesus was basically in the Jerusalem, or we say Judean region. He was south around the Jerusalem surrounding area. Uh, the, The book of John is the only one that actually talks about that part of his ministry. And before he went up and relocated to Capernaum from Nazareth, he, had to, he, he spent time for probably about a half a year to a year in the south. That's when he first met the disciples with John the Baptist. Do you remember that? When uh, Peter said, I met a man, this Messiah, surely this is the Messiah, brought his brother Andrew. That was with the baptism of John. That's when they first were introduced, and that's probably when they first believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That was different than their call to service, which happened in Luke 5 at the Sea of Galilee. But this was the time when he... 
first met those who put their faith in him. So he did miracles, and he obviously showed that he was more than just a general rabbi. He was a, truly a man of God. A prophet was the status he was granted. But he was actually more than that. He was the son of God, the real thing, the Messiah. Now, at the time, people didn't were just being introduced to the Lord Jesus, so they didn't think of him as anything special. They, they, they felt that they had, that is the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rabbis, they felt that they held the upper ground to the religious um, platform of the day. They thought that they were the superior ones. This newcomer is coming along. And, you know, just like in a corporate situation, a job situation, if you're in a newcomer, sometimes the old timers think you're there to take them out, right? And that's part of the thinking that was going on. So the Pharisees said, well, this Jesus, this rabbi, he is, he's making more disciples, even more than John. John was the one that had the, 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 the most uh, recent uh, rabbi impressive notor- notoriety status. Now we've got somebody bigger and better. Wow, we can't compete. And so you hear this rumblings of competition between the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus. It comes up many times in all their conversations in John. It's always like they're trying to duel the Savior, trying to knock him out of the game. Now notice the Lord Jesus does not consider religious things a competition. He doesn't think it's our, our people are better than your people. In fact, when the disciples said, hey, they're casting out demons or they're dealing miracles in your name, should we curse them? The Lord says, what are you talking about? That's not how it works. Right? And that's important for us to understand. We're going to enter into a conversation about worship. And one of the temptations we'll have to cross or we'll have to deal with is that we think we're doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong. Right? Now, I want you to know that I believe in what we do. I really do. I have conviction about what we do. But that is not, that does not give me license to be prideful about my conviction. Do you understand that? That's the big difference. It's okay that we have strength in what we think about and what we, what we know to be true. It's okay, but it's not okay to say all those other poor little Christians out there, as soon as they're enlightened like us, will be on the same page of spirituality. Now that, I believe, would be sin. All right? So here it is, the Lord Jesus, and, he's, and, and he recognizes the tension and the competitive nature of the moment, so he says, i got to go home. I got to go back up to Galilee. Now, if you remember my map, my massive chest of the map, you know, we've got Jerusalem down here just north of the naval. Not the naval base, the real naval, okay? And then you got Jerusalem, all right? Over here is the River Jordan on this. We call it the, uh, uh, what do we call that? The, 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 um, pictorial line, right? And over here is, is the, 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 the central spine mountain range of the country, right? And so what you do is you've got to go through this region of Samaria. What's Samaria? Well, first of all, Samaria was a city. It was a city in the northern part of, of, that, of that central area. And today it's in the West Bank. We actually go to Samaria and we actually stand on the gates of the city of Samaria, originally established by Omer, the father of Ahab. And Ahab was resident there for many years even during Elijah's tenure as prophet, when Elijah came into the city and he said, and Ahab says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, no, you're the one troubling. We stand on those gates right there. It's kind of, kind of moving. It's all kind of dirt and rock, but it's still moving. 
Now, there's a city of Samaria, there's a region of Samaria, and kind of down towards the south of the Samaritan region is this town village, really, called Sikar. Sikar. The Middle Easterners pronounce it differently. Now, this region was a hotbed of bad neighborhood. You see, the, the Samaritans were really left over and somewhat transplants from Nebuchadnezzar's regime. He would actually move people around and he took the Jews of that region and he shipped them off to Babylon and he took some of the Babylonians and he moved them in, but he left some of the original Jewish people there and so they intermarried and, and their religion that fostered from that was really a false religion. It was a hybrid religion. It was not according to the Torah. In fact, over those five or six centuries, the Samaritans developed a sense of their own Torah. No, no, the five books of the, of the Old Testament. That's all they believed, but they actually changed some of the wording in it, altered some of it. And, and some of it had to deal with which mountain had the blessings and the cursings, and I'll explain that in a minute. And so, uh, by reputation alone, by centuries of that kind of behavior, and by the way, when Nehemiah came back to rebuild the Jerusalem walls, some of the Samaritans were involved in the espionage activities to thwart the rebuilding of the wall. So they had bad blood all along. At the time of Christ, in the 50 years prior to the time of Christ and at the time of Christ, some Jews would travel from up here, up by my collarbone, which is Galilee, and they would go through the center of Samaria down to Jerusalem, and they were murdered. And this is on record. Uh, Dr. Erdersheim points this out. It's really, it's really a bad place to be. It's the bad neighborhood. So the Jews would go over by the uh, uh, Rift Valley, the River Jordan. They'd go all the way down to Jericho. Then they'd come back about 15 miles inland. And that 15-mile trek of those last 15 miles was all uphill. And it was a pretty, lar- uh, pretty difficult way to go. So no one went through some... If you were Jewish, you don't go there. It's very much like that today. Except today, it's the Palestinians and the Jews. If you go to Israel with a Jewish guide, they're afraid to go to Sikhar. My first trip to Israel, I was with a very fine gentleman, a Jewish guide, and, and, and it was like we were on a military operation, an op. And we got on the bus. We went over to the well of Sikhar, which is there today. He said, okay, blue team, we've got 15 seconds. Go get a drink. Back on the bus. Go, 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 go. And we're a choo, choo, choo. Right? Right? I take a, I take a Palestinian guide. Why do I do that? Because we get in, we take our time, we drink the water, and we leave unharmed. Right? Now, why is that? Because there is a sense of bad blood, right? Same idea. This is the tension that would have been involved in the Lord Jesus' day. And, and, and for him to say, I need, that means I have a great necessity, not like I want to. He says, I cannot not do this. I have to go through Samaria. I'm sure the disciples are going, seriously? You, you, under, you understand that we're Jewish? They're not. They don't like us here. We are the oddballs. We have on our chest concentric circles. It's called the target. Now, it's not in the text, but that's inferred by the tension and even the lady's conversation with the Lord Jesus. Now, notice also that when the Lord Jesus traveled from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, up to this well of Sychar, by car, it's probably around a 30-minute nonstop trip, maybe 45 minutes. 
you would have to walk six hours plus to get there, right? So I think he started early in the morning and he got there around noon. Now, the Lord Jesus therefore planned to be at a well at a certain time of day to meet a certain specific person who's unnamed. How many times do you ever do things in a manner that you will know you will purposely be exhausted just so you can talk to one person? Most of of us would say, eh, let's not do it like that. I mean, I don't want to be all tired. I'll I'll, I'll take a plane. I won't drive. You see, it tells me something that the Son of God would purposely plan his day plan his movements, plan his hiking, his walking, his, his physical exhaustion to be at a place where one soul would need to have a discussion. I think that's beautiful because let me tell you something. I was that soul. I was that soul who was undone and I was a boy but I was undone and I was lost and going to hell in a fast way. Tim asked me this morning how I was saved. I was saved when I was eight years old. I was already a criminal. I could steal Oreo cookies like you couldn't believe. I have to tell you that story sometime. It's really amazing. Did I tell that at Galilee? Maybe? No? Okay, you forced me. All right. So we had, I grew up in the, when I was young, it was the 70s. You know, they make shows about that today, right? Now, I wanted you to know something. The color avocado was the only color that we ever had. My parents had avocado everything. We had, I lived on Avocado Lane, for goodness sake. And so they had these avocado translucent cookie jars, four of them. And guess what they put inside of them? Oreo cookies. That is torture, isn't it? Every time you walk by, those little Oreos are going, you over here, big boy. And so I'm walking by one day, and I'm serious. Those little Oreos spoke my name. And I went over to that cookie jar now. I've mastered the ability to lift off the lid because the lid rim was frosted. You know what that does. It makes a noise. Yeah. So I mastered it. Oh, man, I was, I was good. I was good. Ocean's Eleven had nothing on me, baby. I put that down there. I got in. I could be in and out. 30 seconds tops. No one would know. Right? One day I was doing my deal. I lifted it off. Did it going back, probably feeling a little cocky, you know, it slipped. And it made the slightest of noises when frosted glass touches frosted glass, kind of like fingers on the chalk, fingernails on the chalkboard, just enough. And I quickly put it down and I gobbled my cookies and I'm walking out. And guess who shows up? My father. He was in the other room and he's got 20-20 hearing. And he, oh shoot, hang on. Okay. Uh, this is important because my son is taking care of my mother who's at dialysis. Can I just take a second here? Is it important? Okay, now I'm going to hand this off to somebody else here. All right, we'll just, put, just leave that there. All right, so what happens is I get this off. My dad hears the noise. He comes walking in, and, 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 and he goes, you know how dads are. You know, and you're only this big. How many cookies did you eat? Not if you ate. How many did you eat? You know, it's kind of like me asking you, when did you quit smoking? You know, you didn't smoke, but I assumed you did. I go, I didn't eat any cookies. 
was a liar too. He said, and why do you have all those Oreo crumbs on your face? <laughs> you know what he said to me next? Go get me a board. Now, my dad said, go get me a board. He didn't mean a twig either. Okay, I came up with a twig. It'd be worse for me. You see, I was a well-oiled sinner. And my God met me. I was so undone. I, I see it today in my life when I, I see the flesh and how it, how it manipulates my soul and I realize, oh, what an awful, malodorous person I was to God. And God met me. Maybe that's your story. That's the story. The Lord God planned to be at a certain location in a certain time and be in a certain physical condition so that he could ask this lady for a drink. And it really was a real need. It wasn't fake. It wasn't planned. It wasn't canned. It was perfect. Don't you love that? I think that speaks of the heart of God. He will put himself in whatever necessary element to be witnessing, to be reaching out, to engage the soul that is really thirsty and they don't know it. That's what's going on here. All right, let's go on to the next thing. Uh, brother, you need to make the clocks. This is terrible. Okay, so he comes to Sikhar. Sikhar's there today. We go there. It's a, every religious site in Israel has a church around it, and this one is too. And you go into this church, and you go, it's really ornate. So I think it's orthodox. And you go down in the back, and you go down into this well. You think you're going to be like never seen again. And down at the bottom of this little thing in the back of the, well, the front of the church, in the back of the building, you go down about steps, ten of them that are very steep, and there's this guy sitting there. And he's got long white hair and a long white beard, and when he smiles, he's missing four teeth, you know. And you're thinking, does that beard touch the water? You know? And he, uh, and you come down, and he gets the water out, and he hands it to you, and we all drank. And nobody got sick. I was very grateful for that. All right, so he goes to Sychar, and the woman came, verse 7, to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It's funny, whenever they're involved with something, they're always like concerned about the food. But anyway, give me a drink. Then the woman said, notice question one, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's pointing out two cultural things. Number one, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. You understand that, right? We don't get along. And number two, um, uh, you're a man. And I'm a woman, and we don't usually talk. Now realize she's there at noon. When do you draw, when do you draw water in, in a hot desert area? Not at noon. It's in the evening or in the morning. Why? Because it's hot to carry that stinking pot around, right? And so you do it at night. Now obviously, she comes at an hour of the day when no one's there. I like to do that. I like to go to Walmart when no one's there. You ever go to Walmart when everybody's there? It's a killer. You get run over by some 80-year-old lady. You don't do that, okay? And so she goes out when it's, it's calm. Why? She's hiding. You'll understand later. It's inferred because of her history. Now, notice what he says. Or she says, how can this be? She, he puts himself in a position with certain circumstances to, to solicit and, and engage in a conversation. And so she goes, uh, how does this work? And then he says, I love it. Well, if you actually knew... The gift of God and who it was, meaning I'm the one that has the gift of God, and says to you, give me a drink. You'd be asking me for a drink. She's going, huh, really? What kind of water do you have? You know, that's basically, she said, sir, you have nothing to draw. She's thinking about the little well there. And, and the well is deep. And where do you get this living water? You have living water? What living water? Is that a new brand out there? Is that, you know, is that kind of from the Ozarks or something? Where is it? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? Now, the, the history of this well is really impressive. Remember, Jacob had to move several times, and finally he found a place where he wasn't going to be bothered by those around him and try to, try to take the well from his possession and, and, or cap it or anything like that. So Jacob, this was a place where there was finally peace. It's a big imagery of how when you obey God, God gives you peace, you see. And he says, are you greater than that? I mean, this well is really impressive. This well was found after a lot of heartache and a lot of problems. And he said, uh, she said, are you greater than that? Can you do, cause you say you got water that's better than this one. I love this water. I don't know what you got, but you must be better. Are you? That's the second question. Jesus says, well, let me tell you this. I'm going to answer your question. Am I greater than your father, than their father Jacob? You drink of this water, you'll thirst again. You drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst. Oh, I'm thinking she's going, oh, I'd love to not come out here every day. This is killing my back. Right? And then she says, but the wa-, he says, but the water that I shall give you will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, that's an important image. A fountain of water. That's actually from John chapter 7, roughly verse 37 to 39, where he talks about the Spirit of God being this fountain of living water. That is God's life in you. That's what's going to give you everlasting life. That's what we learn in John chapter 7, but he didn't really talk about that yet. That's what he's alluding to. That is the author, John. So the woman said, Sir, give me this water. Now Jesus is going to ask a question. We're in the third paragraph now. Jesus is going to well, go get your husband. I always thought that was amazing. She asked for a drink of water. He says, well, go get somebody. I think, like, Lord, did you hear the question? Of course he's answering the question. You don't, don't get me wrong. God is very good at answering the questions. But in order to answer her question, she has, uh, what has to be exposed, it's our third E, engage, our prelude, engage, explanation, and now exposure. He said, he said, no, you're going to have to go get your husband. If you, want to, if you want to drink of living water that's of everlasting quality, we're going to have to talk about something else first. And we're going to have to talk about your sin. And so he says very, very smoothly, very, very subtly, go get your husband. She goes, oh, well, about that, I don't, I don't have a husband. Okay? See, what, we're, what we do as sinners, and even as Christians save sinners, we will only tell you what we think you'll be satisfied to hear. That's the way of sin, by the way. We only will confess what we think will be satisfactory so that you don't get to know the whole story. You see, men love darkness rather than light. So what are we going to do? We're going to hide it. It's a common malady. It's a common thing. You, you Christians in the room, ask yourself, do you, do you like to tell everyone every detail or just a little bit? I notice this when we're dealing with men that are trying, learning to or come to the end of themselves. And uh, I've, I've learned to, to, to live by the following um, axiom. It's always worse than what you're told. It's always worse than what you're told. Right? Why is that? Is that, is that a unique thing? Is that, is that like odd? No. Men's hearts are desperately wicked. What does desperately mean? That means the only thing they can do is wickedness. That's the nature of sin. So it's always going to be worse. Don't be surprised. It's not like God didn't know. You're just finding out. Now, she, goes, she says, oh, I don't, I don't have a husband. Thank you. She goes, well, you've answered correctly. You currently don't have a husband. In fact, right now, he's kind of your living boyfriend. But you have had five husbands. 
What does that mean? Probably five different sets of children. Probably multiple different fractured families and blended families. And now we can't work it out. And so we're going to have a man living in the house and he'll be kind of like the father, sort of. Or maybe he's just hanging around for the fringe benefits of hanging around. Does that sound like our lives today? I mean, it sounds like our lives, right? It sounds like the lives that, 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 that we are as a human race. This is what happens to us. And did you notice that this is the person that God planned to come and talk to and to speak with? He purposely planned to be tired, to be out of energy, to be oh so, so thirsty that he would have a conversation that was really designed not to meet his own thirst, but to meet the thirst of a starving, thirsty soul, a soul exasperated with life. Oh, listen, that's our God. That's what you are to God. You're that life that he wants to have and share a cup of water with, except the cup of water he has changes your soul. Don't you love that about God? Shows up at the right place at the right time for the right need for the right person who's really dying of of exasperation and, and don't even know it. And he steps onto the scene and he identifies it in a very colorful and, and subtle way to engage the soul. And he just says, actually, I know all about you. It's not just her he knew about. When we get to the story later today about the woman in Simon the Pharisee's house, he'll say, and her sins, which are many. It's not like it's hidden. And yet, that doesn't bother God. We're always afraid. The more you know about me, the less you'll like me. God says, I already know everything about you and I already love you. So what's the deal? There is no deal. That's the point. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is it doesn't matter to God. And He meets you right where you are, welcomes you in, and offers the best that He has, everlasting living fountains of water, a spring that doesn't die. Oh, that's what we are, right? We don't know how good we have it. Until we see it in another's life. That's why I enjoyed your question this morning, brother. How were you born again? You were asking me how it started. That's how it started in my life. And I've never been the same since. All right, let's pause because John will throw something at me and I don't want that to happen. Father, thank you for this opportunity. We've just started. Please give us strength to go through what you have us to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.